Welcome back to American Billiard Radio. Today is Friday, November 27th. And on this week's show, I talked to Jerry Forsyth. Uh, Jerry's been around the game of pool as a as a reporter for longer than AZ Billiards has been around. And man, there's days that it feels like AZ Billiards has been around forever. But I took an opportunity to talk to Jerry about the Tokyo Open IBC event that took place 20 years ago. And from there, as things typically tend to do when I talk to Jerry, things kind of went off on a different tangent. And we got to talking about Efren Reyes and and just how strong Efren was when he was at the peak of his game. But before we get to that, we do have news this week. The biggest tournament result news, certainly not the biggest news, but the biggest tournament result news was Jeff DeLuna winning the nine ball and the 10 ball divisions at the first annual Mucci Classic at Rax in Sanford, Florida. Now, Ambi Estevez from New York went out to Florida to run this event. And, you know, I'll be honest, uh, prior to the tournament, I looked at a 50-some player division, 150-player division, also running a pay-per-view stream, one man, I don't care how many people you got on your team, I thought, you know, I've I've done I've ran tournaments. We've all ran tournaments before, and I've handled a stream. I thought he was he was definitely taking on more than he could. And in the beginning, if the first night of the tournament, looking at all the complaints online, yeah, it it seemed that way. But to Ambie's credit, there weren't you know you know the complaints complaints went away for the most part. As far as the pay-per-view goes on Friday, and everything seemed to run smooth after that. Um, he committed to Skip, the AZ Billiards writer who you've probably all read hundreds of articles from, that there were going to be brackets online and there were going to be scores on them. Lord knows brackets online and scores you, you you don't think you're asking too much but there's an awful lot of tournaments out there that don't do that so he he lived up to his commitments with skip he was great working with skip uh from everything i understand he ran two great tournaments so um i was really you know for my feelings that that ambi was taking on too much i was wrong and he he did an exemplary job um with Jeff DeLuna winning both divisions, he won uh, close to 10,000. Uh, I understand 3,000 of those winnings are going back to the Philippines for the, the typhoon relief effort. Dennis Orcoyo also raffled off his personal cue case, raised almost $1,000 doing that. I had a chance to talk to Mike Wang over at Omega, and he said that as soon as that tournament in Florida was over, that Dennis was going back to Texas and was going to work with Mike to get a new case made and that they were going to work on some other relief efforts. So I would expect to hear more on that one fairly soon. Uh, Liz Taylor won the Northeast Women's Tour season finale. It's nice of Carolyn Powell to take a break and let the other ladies have a chance to win. Liz is on a bit of a hot streak now. That's two, uh, two big wins for her in two weeks. Tony Chohan, 
Three Days with Scott Frost playing a little One Pocket. That's a match that a lot of people had been waiting for, and it was a shame that it didn't happen. You know what? It's my podcast, so I can say it. Uh, that it didn't happen when both of them were in their One Pocket Prime. No, I'm not jumping up to gamble with either one of them, so let's not go down that road. But, you know, let's face it, uh, one of them is playing under a bit more heat out there while the other has backed off a little bit. You know, life comes in and becomes a priority. But but either way, you know, no matter when they played it, um, Scott came out on fire day one, took a 10 to 4 lead. They were playing a race to 30 over three days. So 10-4 Scott after one day. Tony played like Tony was expected to play on day two and caught up and then took the lead at 20 to 17. It all came down to day three. Uh, Scott made a comeback. They were tied at 26. Tony won three, went to the hill, 29-26. Ended up winning at 30 to 27. So Tony Chohan won that challenge match. Uh, Paul Drexler was inducted into the International Q-Makers Hall of Fame for 2020. Um, I'm going to work on trying to get some more information about about Paul. And, and honestly, as far as all of the media projects that I'm involved with, that being this show, the Billiard Buzz magazine, of course, AZ Billiards, uh, there are a number of things that I would like to do to better support the billiards community and and better cover everything that's going on in billiards and cue making is one of them um you know i've talked to mike capone a couple of times well i've talked to mike capone a handful of times and and it always comes back down to me it comes down to having the time to to actually do it and and i i keep saying i'm going to but i'm going off on a tangent again uh Congratulations to Paul Drexler, and and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to talk to him on the show. The other tournament results were, you remember the Texas Open Nine Ball Championship that happened two or three weeks ago? Well, they were able to do the one pocket. They were able to do the nine ball. They were not able to do the ladies division. So, So when Skinny Bobs was able to open back up after the little COVID scare, they scheduled the women's event last weekend. That was won by the same player who won it last year and the year before, Empress Ming Ng. Ming is not a player that anyone who has followed the game for very long would be surprised at her getting the win. Uh, Ming has been playing professionally for longer than I've been covering the game, and there aren't a whole lot of players out there who've been playing professionally longer than I've been covering the game. Um, I, I took a chance to, to speak to Ming, and I asked her how exactly she is able to keep playing at the level that she's playing at for as long as she has. Well, I think over time, you know, like I said, like as, as we get older, you know, we have different priority. So I think pool is like wine. That's how I always describe it. Because I think as you get older, you get a little bit, wiser and you're uh, you don't necessarily have to be at the table all the time to really excel that i think it's uh i think it's just uh, the mental side of the game more than anything just like any sport and um quite frankly i don't really play much pool or 
probably none at all. Um, due to a couple of circumstances, you know, number one, I have uh, rheumatoid arthritis with all my joints and my fingers and, you know, on my body, you know, that I'm even on medication these days. And it swells up so badly that if I play so much, it just, uh, I can't even bend my fingers the next day. So what I do, I really keep that to a minimum, even with the medication. However, uh, during the time of COVID, um, I did take in a student for the first time in my life that I'm extremely proud of. And, and I think with him, it helped me a lot because I don't necessarily have to like, you know, I can shoot a shot here and there for him, but, but to really like explain, you know, the knowledge of the game to him. So it kind of helped me to remember certain things that I forgot to do myself, you know, as far as like the fundamental buy of it. And, you know, from time to time, you know, so it's tough to teach someone if, if you can't execute the shot, right, Mike? <laughs> what it looks like. So I think that helps me also a little bit um, doing, uh, help me to prepare, you know, for the Texas Open a little bit. I would say that have, definitely I have a uh, contribute to it. And then, of course, it was only right. I, I had to ask Ming, you know, how long has she actually been playing the game? Uh, I started playing pool when I was 16 to, um, I think, about 21. Then I stopped playing for a few years, and I started again when I was, like, 25. Because I knew it took, you know, money, you know, to go to tournaments. So what I did was, uh, when I was younger, I saved the money for three years in a row, and I was able to put myself into you know the you know traveling and the time to play and then uh, when I started playing um, I won uh, the rookie of the year in 1997 my first year on the WPBA and uh, and then I stopped playing around 2002 uh, when I got in an accident and I uh, dislocated my shoulder and uh, I had to have surgery and then that was another you know, five year off with a four year, like continuously uh, strengthening my shoulder again, you know, to have, you know, you know, without like slipping out, but it slips out from time to time, but, but, you know, it is what it is. So that's why I knew that after that, you know, you know, of course, you know, picked up bad habits, like my stance, my, my stroke, I just don't feel connected, you know? with it from time to time. And the only thing like it really saved me was just like my fundamentals. And logically, considering how long she's been playing, I, I asked Ming how long she still sees herself playing and playing at the level in which she's playing. Well, I think, in, um, you know, like I said, I mean, I don't know how long I'm going to last, <laughs> but I think uh, with pool is, uh, I don't think you should put a, a time limit on it at all. I mean, whatever your capability and how you take care of yourself, you know, uh, whether, uh, you know, physically. So I think as, uh, you know, as time goes by, no matter what, you know, our, our body, you know, muscles deteriorate as time goes by. So, you know, I, I don't know how much time I want to say I want to give myself, but I do know, like, I want, there's many more things that I want to do, you know, and it's not, pool is definitely not on that list, 
you know, because pool for me now it's become an enjoyment as a hobby. It's not a job for me. You know, I don't have to check in and check out, <laughs> you know. It's a hobby that I just want to enjoy. And what I want to do in the near future is uh, be able to travel. I want to travel in different parts of the world that I haven't been to. I want to see different things and explore. And I want to do that while I'm still can in that time frame. I certainly don't want to do all that when I'm in my 60s. So every opportunity that I feel like I'm going to be able to get to do that, I would do that. That would be definitely my top priority. So that brings us up to speed on tournament results. Now the big news. Uh, Justin Bergman is out of the Moscone Cup uh, roughly a week before heading over to Ryko Arena it was announced that Justin had tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, Corey Duell takes his place. Um, yeah, there was some talk about why Tyler didn't take his place, and, and I certainly don't know the reasoning behind that. I suspect there's more to it than just somebody didn't want to play or, or invited or anything like that, but who knows when we'll know that. But either way, it's Corey and not Justin. I don't know what that changes for Team USA. I think they've got a, a real steep uh, mountain to climb this year, but I thought they had a steep mountain to climb last year, and I was completely wrong. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Corey definitely brings experience to the game or, or to the team, and he's been under fire quite a bit the last couple of months. He's been out playing. He was playing at the Texas Open. He did not play in Florida because he was getting ready to go overseas for the event. But I know he's been in Vegas playing quite a bit, so there's no question that he's, he's ready to play at that level. You know, something I wanted to talk about when it comes to Moscone Cup, I see they're doing this thing now the last couple of days. Uh, they're kind of trying to take the UFC approach and, and trash-talking each other. You know, my first thought was, I don't care for trash talk. Um, you know, I've done it. I've, I've been a part of it on AZ Billiards in the past. The, the thing with me is, I was told when I was very young, there's a fine line between good humor and bad taste. Now, don't get me wrong. None of the guys who are doing the trash talking so far have crossed over that line. I mean, it's all, I've got more titles than you, I play better than you, you know, go back to fishing, that sort of thing. And none of that is is personal and really over the line, but it's so easy to go over the line. And may I remind people, we do have a, let's say, loose cannon on Team Europe who really hasn't completely made himself comfortable in his I can trash talk with the best players in the world stance. So, yeah, you probably don't want him getting too involved with this. But, you know, Moscone Cup is not a tournament. It's an exhibition. It's five of the top players from America, five of the top players from Europe. I remember years and years ago when things blew up with Earl and Diana Hoppy was with him at the time. Everyone knows Diana. And she took him aside and said, Earl, you're not playing in a tournament. This is an exhibition. So again, it's trash talk. You know what? Some people like it. Some people don't. 
I fall in the don't category, but hey, I'm one person, one person with a podcast. So either way, that is what's what's been happening uh, as far as what is going to be happening this weekend. Starting tomorrow, the Maryland State Bar Table 10-Ball Championship at Brews and Cues. That is going to be another On the Hill production. So I expect we'll have full coverage of that next week. And then, of course, after that, come Tuesday, we have the Moscone Cup. So that's what's coming up. As far as my interview for this week, like I said, I spoke to Jerry Forsyth. We went, uh, we started off talking about the Tokyo Open, and then we went off to, to talking about Efren, which all pool fans really should spend time talking about Efren. <laughs> so here we go. Without further ado, I give you Jerry Forsyth. Joined now by the keeper of all billiards information, Jerry Forsyth. Jerry, how you doing? I'm doing good, Mike. How about you? I uh, can't complain. Um, yeah, good. The reason that I wanted to talk this week is November 14th, 2001, Tokyo Nine Ball. You remember that one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, that was a political football. Very interesting <laughs> tournament. <laughs> now, for for those listeners like myself who don't know much about this event... It was won by Efren, $160,000 in prize money. There's got to be a story behind that. Well, that, that was just his prize money. That was just first place. I don't remember what the total prize money was, but it was huge. It was the, it was the richest tournament to that date that had ever been held. And um, can't remember the gentleman's name who owned this company. It was either Takashi or something similar like that. Yeah, his name's just not going to come to me. But he 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 just come out with a brand new pool table, the Nagato pool table, and it was a copy of the Gold Crown Four, and uh, or the Gold Crown. The Four hadn't come out yet, I don't think. Um, and he held this huge tournament, um, and formed this organization called the International Billiard Council, which was a competitor to the JPBF, the Japanese Pocket Billiard Federation. And they were having political war, and they were banning players from playing in each other's events and all that. But at any rate, this tournament did come off, and um, like you say, Efren won it, and he won over 106, I think it was 163,000 was the actual amount plus some change but it was 20 million yen first prize that check he held up at the end said 20 million yen on it that was the richest purse anyone had ever won to that to that date and who would break it three years later three or four years later Efren (laughs) when he won two hundred thousand dollars at the IPT right now if I if I search on AZ, we've got information from 01 to 03 of an International Billiard Council tour. That would be it. I didn't know he had more. I didn't remember him having other events, though. Did he have any in the United States, does it say? It it does. I see um, Suke, second straight IBC title, 
with a 6-1-6-1 victory over Johnny Archer in the finals of the IBC U.S. Championship at J.O.B. Billiards. And that would have been September of 2002. Wow. And that had 79,000. That was 79,000 for first prize? No, that was total prize money for the event. And it looks like it was based on paying way down in the field. Huh. They were paying $1,000 to 33rd place. Okay. And in, in Tokyo, they paid, I believe, 2000 down to 33rd place. I did not go to the tournament at JOB's. Okay, but you were at the event in Tokyo. Oh, yeah. I mean, really, this event is more proof positive that the old adage is true, that you can have as many organizations as you want in pool, and, and we have more than enough three-letter abbreviations in pool, but it still really comes down to who has the biggest checkbook. Exactly. Exactly. Um, at least on the pro tour scene, that's true. Whoever has the money is going to get the player. So, so tell me about this event. It, it ran, what, four days. And I spoke right. to Corey about this event the other day. And he said yep. he remembered vendors there, but that was about all he remembered. He said the rest of it was just, you know, he just played whoever he played and, and moved on. Well, the the tournament itself was like any other tournament, but this was my first time to ever go to Tokyo. And we had a day before the tournament started to tour Tokyo. And so a bunch of us went into town because we knew we'd been given the name of a street where there were uh, two really nice pool rooms. And so we get to that street, and we're walking down the street looking for the pool rooms. And there, there is a fella from Tokyo with us. I'm not sure who it, if it was Takahashi, the player, or someone else. But what, what amazed us was that the highways were four and five highways tall because they had run out of space in Tokyo to build new roads. So they were building roads above one another. They, they went up with their roads instead of out. And the same thing was true with, they had a housing shortage because there's just no place to build houses. And so many generations of a family were living in the same small home or apartment. Now that's, turns out that's a, a Japanese custom that, that family stays together through multiple generations but it was it was forced on them at that time because there was no place they could go and uh, the two pool rooms were right across the street from one another on this busy street and one of them had like 120 tables and the other one had 90 some tables they were both uh, three to five stories tall with pool tables on every level and nice restaurants, and nice nightclubs on the bottom level. Um, and both of them had wait lists for tables 24 hours a day. Those tables were always busy. And the, the uh, an average wait time for a table was a couple of hours. So the pool was huge in Tokyo in 2001. And... 
I'm sure you're the one who told me this story years ago. Was it Tokyo where there were high-end cues up on the rack with like a piece of yarn over them to let people know that they were not house cues? Yes. Yeah. They the People didn't bother locking their cues up. They just put them on the wall with, you know, a, a piece of string or something to say who, whose they were, and people left them alone. Not to say anything negative about any particular cue company, but are we talking about Schmelkies? I mean, are we talking about McDermott's, Mucci's, Predators? I mean, the Predator at the time, but, you know, what kind of cues were no. we talking about? Well, the most popular cue back then was um, Meucci, so there were a lot of Meucci's around. Uh, Palmer's, um, sure, McDermott's. Yeah, McDermott was really hot, um, oh, especially overseas. They loved McDermott cues over there. It was all the cues that were popular at the time. Um, I don't remember seeing any Bill Strouds or Richard Blacks, but uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me to have seen them up there. And that was, I mean, that was another huge year for Efren. Uh, 01, he was the number one money winner, which, of course, you would expect him to be. You know, but, but without that tournament, he was still 70,000 in winnings. Um, in your recollection, just how dominant was Efren back when he was at the top of his game? Uh unbelievably dominant he, he just he just he seemed to win every big event and especially if it was the first in fact after after he won this event um he, he told the interviewer that he always liked to win the first event of a new series that he really always tried harder to win that very first event um but he you know, he won the first um, open event in the IPT as well. You know, you, you had that first showdown between uh, Mike and um, Laurie John, but then when they had a real tournament, he was the first winner. You think he just dug deep when, when he knew he had to? You know, I, I, I never saw Efren looking like he was concentrating hard or <laughs> or putting out an extra effort or anything. He he always seemed to be so easygoing and everything seemed to be so natural for him. Now that did fall apart in the finals of this event, uh when he was leading he was playing Niels Fayen and they were racing to fifteen and he was leading like 10 to 5 or 11 to 5, something like that. And both of their games suddenly left them. And they were missing, both of them were missing shots that they would never miss. In the same rack, both of them gave up ball in hand by missing a very easy one-rail kick. They missed the whole ball. And that's the only time I've seen weakness in Efren at all. But at the same time, he was getting very close to winning the most money anybody had ever won in pool. Um, and he, he wasn't the only one to go weak because Niels went weak as well. Uh, he wound up winning 15 to seven, but the last few racks were not 
uh, beautiful Efren runout racks. You know, it's interesting that you mention uh, missing kicks. Corey, when we talked to him the other day, referenced, you know, that Efren was the first one who who brought kicking safe into the game. As as a reporter at the time, I mean, was there a time when you were watching him play and had that realization, oh my God, he's he's kicking safe. He's not just hitting the ball and hoping for something good to happen. Actually, I didn't make that realization myself. A, a player made it for me. I believe it was Johnny Archer. And Efren had just finished a match. And this was not at this event. This was at another event. And Johnny sat down next to me and said, that guy's changing the game. And I said, how do you mean? He said, he's kicking to make shots, not to hit a ball. And yeah, he would also kick to play a safety and make it work. So he was not just trying to hit the ball. He was trying to hit an aiming point on the ball. And that really did change the game. That's when folks like Johnny and Corey and Earl and all those guys started practicing their kicking game because they realized how powerful a tool that was to have in their arsenal. If someone played them a safety, they need to be able to kick their way out of it. And they all got pretty good at it pretty fast. <laughs> so in in the time that you've reported on the game, you've had Efren revolutionize the kicking game. You've had Corey revolutionize the break. Would you consider the jump cue revolutionizing things? Yeah, it's it's... It's not a revolution that I care for. Uh, frankly, I don't like jump cues. I think if you play a safe, the other person ought to have to kick their way out of it rather than pull out a short trick stick. But most people disagree with me on that. But, um, yeah, the jump cue was def- definitely changed the game. I won't say it changed it for the better, but it sure did change it. And, and there are guys who who specialize in the jump, but would you consider them as individuals revolutionizing the game or more the equipment moving forward and them taking advantage of that change in equipment? Oh, I think the equipment. Yeah. When they, they first, you know, first people were jumping with just a shaft. They just unscrew the stick and jump with the shaft. And then that was made illegal. Uh, You couldn't jump with something shorter than I believe 44 inches. So they had to put these, they invented these little bitty lightweight uh, cue butts that when you un- unscrewed the shaft of your playing cue, this little butt would, would screw on there, and then you could jump with it because that made it the right length. Um, but, yeah, it's I mean, the jump cue certainly changed the game as much as any piece of equipment ever has. I wish I'd have been in Tokyo. Sounds like it was a great event. It was. The, the, the finals... Was in a was in a separate room off from the main room that only had this one table in it as I as I remember, and it was just jam packed with people, especially uh, the sporting press of, of Japan. All the major newspapers were there, the TV networks were there, um, all filming this thing, and um, it was really impressive, very very impressive event. Um, I would like to have had the opportunity to go to more events over there because they, the, the officials were, were spot on 
and um, everything ran on time. It was it's very very nice, and the money was great. And you made a comment more than a few years ago that you thought China was the future of the game. Did it did it feel like that in Japan at that time? You know, with all the undercurrents of war between the federations, it didn't. It it, it felt like something was going to happen, but you didn't know what. And as it turned out, it just sort of died and went away. Sounds like a lot of things that have happened in the sport. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've seen a, a lot of swan songs in this game. Speaking of swan songs... One of the things they were using in this in this event um, was the um, oh, what was the name of that rack? Um, Doug, the Sardo. It. When you press, yeah, the Sardo. They were using the Sardo rack, and um, one of the referees, it was the Sardo rack where you had to put the balls in and press down on a lever on top. Remember that? Oh, I do. Yeah. And he he could not get that to work, and the the one ball kept rolling off the, the front of the spot, and at one point nobody saw it, but the one ball was probably quarter of an inch away from the balls in the and in the row first row of two, and it was Niels Fayen's break, and I was sitting there going, oh, this is going to be a muddy, ugly break. Niels roared back and hit those balls so hard that he sank two balls on the break and got a great spread around the table. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. But he, but you have to remember, back then, Niels, he was in danger of breaking the cue ball every time he, he uh, hit a break shot. He was one powerful guy. I mean, he still is, but back then, back then he was 20 years younger. And... You know, if if there were any weakness in Efren's game, it was always his break, wasn't it? Yeah, but, you know, he never saw that as a weakness. He just said it's not a strength. But it sure didn't keep him away from the table very much. People that would normally run rack after rack after rack after rack would get up and play Efren, and their boots were shaking. They They could not play as well against Efren as they did against anybody else because they were scared of him they should they should have been scared of him the guy was a magician <laughs> <laughs> well the game is definitely um, weaker without his presence in it yeah it's it's missing something without Efren because well he was just so magical to watch and he was always so different from all the other pool players he didn't have a big ego uh he was very down to earth um when he had spare time he wanted to spend it playing chess you know he's different breed of cat and who's the closest you think we have to him right now alex well certainly not in personality um i think maybe um Shane Van Boning, because he has the same kind of quiet attitude. He's understated. You know, you don't you don't see Shane running around pool rooms bragging. He's very quiet. 
just lets his stick do his talking. And hopefully we haven't seen the best of Shane in his career. Well, probably not. Yeah, he's, he's still maturing. All right. Well, that's what I was curious about. You know, the event came up as something that had happened on this day in billiards. Uh, and, and I thought, God, you know, it, there's, there's the story of this tournament, but I don't know anything about it. It was fun, except the flight over and the flight back were miserable. Yeah, but you don't like flying. Were you working for P&B at the time? Yeah. Yeah. So then there's an old, early 2002 Pool and Billiard magazine out there with a write-up on this. Because I couldn't find it in National Billiard News. And and probably a Billiards Digest as well. Because a lot of times when I went overseas, I'd work for both of them. Um, uh, Assume a different name for one of them and write two totally different articles. (laughs) Uh, but that, but that way they got to split my expense money and it didn't cost them hardly anything. Well, fortunately, nobody listens to this, so they won't know. <laughs> well, I think anyone who would care already knew. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then that gives us a, a goal to track down an old, uh, O2 Billiards Digest or Pool and Billiard Magazine and, and learn more about this event. It would be either December of 2001 or January of 2002. And I've got all these old pool and billiard magazines somewhere, but they're not in any order. (laughs) But if I can find them, I'll I'll see if I can find it, see if we can come up with anything new. All right. Sounds good. I will let you get back to it. Thank you, sir. You have a good one. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, that was Jerry, and that was uh, that was talk about Efren. I don't know exactly what I don't know exactly who I'll have for the show next week. I, I don't have anything lined up. Uh, it's it's Moscone Cup week, so I'm not really sure. I, I think I may be doing a a post day show with Nate over at Cue It Up, uh, just talking about one of the days of the event. I don't know which day, but. Everyone's going to be watching that, so, you know, there's a possibility I won't even have a show next week, but who knows. Either way, I appreciate everybody taking the time out of their day to listen this week. And once again, Dave, we are all thinking about you.